Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you live with the Newcastle Libraries app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. The following episode of Broken Chains contains coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Broken Chains, a podcast where former prisoners discuss the prison system. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people. As always, we'd like to pay our respects to Elders, and on today's episode, we'd also like to acknowledge Indigenous overrepresentation in youth custody and efforts to raise the age of incarceration in Australia from only 10 years of age. I'm your host, Damien Lenane, and joining me on the program today is Keenan Mundine, co-founder of Deadly Connections. Yes, it was broken. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today, Keenan. It's really great to have you here. Why don't we start with just introducing yourself to the audience and telling us a bit about your story. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you for allowing me to come on and um, share my story. So my name's Keenan Mundy. I'm a proud Birupai man and Waka Waka man. So Birupai is up in Taree, uh, Birupai country. So my mum's from up there and then my father's from Sherberg up in Queensland. But I was born and raised on Gadigal land. So I was born and raised in Sydney um, on the block. Uh, man. I think, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. And then we can talk a little bit more about my experience. Yeah, no, fair enough. It's, uh, yeah, everyone's got a like, yeah, long story. And why don't we start with uh, talking, because uh, we want today's uh, episode to focus uh, around uh, youth detention. And um, yeah. can you tell us about your experience with that yourself? I was 14 when I first went into youth detention here in New South Wales. Um, but I think, you know, for me, um, the biggest thing that I like to do is in terms of, you know, young people that end up in these places is try and educate the wider community. So I was 14 when I went in and I'll give a little bit of a background into how I ended up there. So I was the youngest of three boys and I was, like I said, born and raised here in Redfern. My community in the early 90s um, was a really, really troubled spot. There was, you know, a lot of Aboriginal families and, and members in my community. So the block only consisted of four streets. Redfern Street, Lewis Street, Vine Street and Caroline Street. And my community was over-policed. It was under-resourced. There was a lot of unemployment. There was a lot of undiagnosed mental health. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of domestic violence, a lot of unemployment. And, you know, my mum and dad um, done the best they could with the skills they had at the time. But at a very young age, my mum passed away from an overdose. And not long after my mum passed away, um, my father was found hanging um, in a car park across the road from my primary school. So by the age of like seven or eight, I lost both of my parents and my family and community at that time didn't know how to support me and my two older siblings. So they made the decision to split us up. 
So after losing my mum and my dad, I lost my two older brothers, I lost my community, I lost my school, I lost everything that kept me safe and protected and I was placed in kinship care with mob, but I was taken from one suburb to another suburb and none of what I just sort of spoke about was identified and targeted and, and sort of, you know, done some trauma-informed counselling and therapeutic counselling around what I was experiencing. So at the end of like... Year seven, I started, as everybody does when they get into high school, start getting a little bit of independence, catching buses to and from school to sport. So I started navigating my, my way around. I found out that one of my siblings was back at Redfern at that time. And I asked my family, can I see my brother? And they denied that request because of the choices he was making. And I jumped on a bus and I left that house. And in the space of about three months, I found my brother. I wasn't ready for the situation that I found him in. He was heavily intoxicated. He was in a drug house with 10 or 12 other people. And he got very distressed and disturbed that, you know, I propped up in this house where he never thought he would see his younger brother and basically told me to get the fuck out and this is not the place for you and go home and all of that stuff like a big brother tried to do, not understanding I wasn't getting my needs met in my placement. And he continued on, you know, with his journey and I was left, man, just after the Olympics at Redfern, 14 years old, no mum and no dad, no ID, no ways of supporting myself, and I was homeless. And that's how I sort of ended up in, in the space of um, taking things that didn't belong to me. So, man, like I said, in three months, so I, I think I finished year eight. I just won a grand final playing junior football in my local competition. And then within the space of three months, man, I was in juvenile detention, experimenting with drugs and alcohol, trying to find some piece of, you know, my experience for being on this earth for 14 years and what I went through and what I experienced, man. Certainly sounds like, you know, some people um, get set up to fail more than others. And yeah, I, it, I can completely understand why, um, yeah, you'd end up somewhere like you did. Um, how long did you spend in youth detention? I went through a never-ending revolving door in, in my juvenile time. So when I went in at 14, Everything that I explained to you, I, I told the, the institution that I was at and they basically just punished me for the crimes I was accused for and they just kept opening the gate and letting me out. So it started off with little like bail refusers, you know, for three, four days to find accommodation, then bail refused for two weeks and bail refused for four weeks and ended up then getting convictions for six months and eight months. And all the while at 15, I stopped sort of drinking alcohol. I started smoking weed heavy. I started smoking heroin at 15 by 16. I was injecting heroin. By 17, I was like a poly drug user. I'd have a bong in the morning, I'd have a shot of heroin, i have a shot of cocaine, and I'd go out and do what I need to do to take care of myself. And none of what I've just ex experienced was addressed. And, you know, none of the safety stuff in the community was addressed. So I just stayed in that cycle and went on into the adult prison system. I mean, one of the overall problems we have in our system is like, we yeah, there, there isn't a lot of restorative justice. They don't, they don't address the causes of crime. They just punish yeah the, the the issue at hand and it yeah that definitely doesn't help solve the, the overall problems no it sounds like a very challenging childhood and I, I suppose you know a lot of other people who might have had been in a similar position and and do you think um this is part of the reason why um it's so indigenous youth incarceration rates in particular are so much higher than the general population like what what do you think the main causes of that uh there, there's a lot like there's like sort of you know intergenerational um you mm -hmm. know involvement with, with child protection and the justice system 
So I think the easiest way I can explain it for the average person was like m mainly most of the young mob who end up in child protection, their mum and dad um, had them at a really young age and didn't really have the best parenting skills. Therefore, they continued about their business and, and, and trying to cope with their trauma. A lot of the people that I seen, so their dad would already be on drugs and in and out of jail. Their mum would be on drugs and have multiple child protection cases because of, they've got multiple kids. So then the child then gets removed and placed into care. So now he's got no stability. And while he's in care, he's going through some of the stuff that I went through and his behaviours get criminalised. So a lot of the brothers that I seen in there, they were like... Some of them were in there for stealing, but a majority of them were in there for having their behaviours criminalised. So they would be in a foster home. They don't have the skills to regulate their emotions. And if they smash a window or they punch a wall, they get charged for damaging property and they get sent to an institution over that. Whereas if that was your child or my child at home, we would sit down and explain to them that they can't go punching walls and how to regulate their emotions and all of those things that make um, happy adult and pro-social citizens. Like I said, most of the kids that I seen in there were kids from out of home care, running away from placements, you know, smoking weed and taking alcohol back to their placements and they get criminalised for these things. Then when they come inside, they meet kids like myself who are out on the street and it's the criminal university, man. If you want to learn how to make money, man, you like if you get locked up, you'll find an alternate way of making making an income. It's just such a ridiculous way of trying to just solve the issue really is yeah yeah it's it's uh definitely not conducive to rehabilitation on any level um did you find there were many like services for youth in prison because I, I i never went to youth detention myself so no so the way the way they sort of frame it in custody is like you know you can't even call them officers or anything you they make you call them by their name but they lock you in their offices man they, they scrutinize every every movement you do they write reports about you you know they watch and, and do all of these things Sorry, what was the question? I, I just went on a tangent. No, no, that's all right. I was like, are there many like good services or programs or like support <laughs> in there? Yeah. Absolutely none, man. Absolutely none. So now as an adult who's um sort of, not sort of, I'm now in a different space, I'm excluded to go back and work with Young Mob because of my criminal record. So most of, of the programs and everything that is designed for these young people aren't designed by those people. So they're designed by good-hearted, educated people who feel like they have the answer to poverty and marginalisation and post-traumatic stress and all of these things where they've never lived that life, so they always miss the mark. But in terms of our most vulnerable children, they do not deserve to be in an institution. These people that work in there are very, very under equipped to work with our most vulnerable children in this country you know these are people that are halfway between uni um, they just get a job in there and then sometimes there are people that don't get any sort of qualifications and they stay in these institutions for 10 20 years and they just go up through the ranks from being you know a frontline officer to being a manager to now being a area manager or a governor of a youth detention so there are no pathways out of these places you know the way they're designed the way they operate the different age groups that you have have in them you know some centers mix 14 year old kids with 17 year old kids some of them exclude them and you're only allowed to like hang around your own age group so you get really lost in these places and you lose your identity man and you lose your culture and all sense of who you are and it's only only a matter of time when you start taking on these 
traits and, 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 and personas when they're when you're reading reports about you, you know, that you're violent, that you're defiant, you know, you're oppositional, you're standoffish, you know. We have the right to look at our experience, man. Yeah, I can imagine that you keep reading that about yourself. Eventually, you, you start believing it and you, you, you lose a lot of hope. Yes, it was broken. And isn't it just so ironic that the, these places, they don't have people who have that lived in experience. And it's so stupid that, you know, yeah, the fact that you have that experience and also the criminal record that goes with it makes you yeah, ineligible. I actually had a friend in prison who, who wanted to be a youth counsellor. He, he thought people and yeah, he, he was right. Like people could um, like disadvantaged youth could really benefit from his experience. But yeah, he was actually told by the university, look, that there's no chance you're going to get a job in there with the conviction you have. And so it's a wasted opportunity a lot, but that's, that's the prison system for, for you, isn't it? A, a lot of wasted opportunities. Yeah. I think the reason why I do what I do now is because as a vulnerable young person in those institutions, I would have benefited sitting down with someone like myself who went through hardships. And it's not to say that I'm out the other side because I have to carry my experience with me every day, you know, and, and, and that impacts my mental health every day being segregated, isolated, locked away, being strip searched, being told you're no good, being told that, you know, you don't, there's always a bed for you here in prison. Those things. Yeah. Yeah. Far out. No, it definitely sounds like it's an incredibly frustrating situation. Um, I suppose that, uh, you know, that, that old adage, you know, be the person you needed when you're younger. Does that have something to do with why you've, um, you, you're a co-founder of Deadly Connections. Is that right? Correct, man. Yeah. Correct. And, and <laughs> yeah, I had like a little epiphany this morning, man, and I can't believe it. You know, I have like moments of clarity for the day where I get to visualize, you know, some of the dreams that I have had as a, as a child. And I'm now the adult that I wanted to be, man. Mm. I'm a father. I'm a husband. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a hardworking man. I pay my taxes. You know, and and as a child having that experience, all I wanted was that safety and stability of my home. And yeah, on in the car in the morning, like I'm the man that I wanted to be as a kid. It's really great to hear you've made it that far, because uh, yeah, I I can assume that a lot of people who had your childhood probably aren't where you are today. Yeah, you're probably the exception. A lot of people fall into the cracks and then don't come out, which is a real shame. And I, and I really feel like, as you probably know, one of the uh, hallmarks of judging whether a person's going to stay in the criminal justice system is you send them in as a child and then they just get stuck in this revolving door, which is why I, it's so important to try and keep children out of there in the first place. I just think it's amazing that, that we send 10-year-olds to prison in this country and that's condemned worldwide. And it, there's so much opposition to it, but yeah, why do you think nothing's changed so far what people need to understand in terms of the criminal justice system is it's a business most recently some of the figures were released and i think last year we spent nine billion dollars on the criminal justice system for me it's that what always is will always be they don't know any other way to do it it's never been done any other way and like you said man it's our country's you know biggest shame that we lock kids up as young as 10 11 12 and 13 we're supposed to be a first world country in the way we market australia our infrastructure our policies our laws our parliament that we're a first world country but you know there are countries out there that don't have the resources we have and they don't lock kids up and the other thing is that even during this campaign, we had to produce numerous amounts of research and evidence as to the adverse effects of locking young children up. So it's basically the onerous is on us to prove it, whereas the government isn't telling us 
why they're locking 10-year-olds up. That's hard to sit with because we're on one side of the table and we're arguing, but they're not telling us why. Why are you continuing to lock 10-year-olds up? I understand your frustration there because um, like I've gotten letters back from corrective services and they have these like, you know, kind of stock uh, standard responses to thing like, oh, it's the policy of corrective services to do this. I'm like, yeah, but you're in charge of that. You can change that anytime you want, but you don't. And you just refer back to your, the policy you wrote yourself as justification for why nothing's changing. And it's, it's, it's really frustrating. You went to the UN in Switzerland to address the Human Rights Council about that, this issue. Did you um, find, um, well, first of all, how was that experience for you? It was, it was a big experience, man. I'm just in like pilot mode from, from the life that I lived and I don't really have the capacity to forward plan and forward think. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't get to process it, man, until like I landed in Geneva that I actually, you know, accomplished this and I didn't get to really like emotionally process it until I came home because I was just in it. I'm so used to flight or f- flight or fight, like operating like that. But it was, man, for me, it was one of the biggest privileges in my life. Like never once did I um, even dream or have, a, uh, you know, a seed planted that this little boy from Redfern who was, you know, uh, a hope, like what some people would call is a homeless, no good junkie, would ever travel halfway around the world and represent his people and, you know, try and call on our government and, and tell them to have a look at it. So for me, that was like, that's up there, man, with finishing my parole, um, meeting, my, meeting my partner, you know, finding out that we're having, you know, children and being there for the birth of my children. Like, that's up there in like my top five. Uh, it's awesome to hear. Like, um, and I, I suppose the, uh, I can only assume the uh, response from the, uh, you would have received over there. There's a lot of support for um, raising the age here. Yeah, there is, man, there is. A lot of people didn't understand, like I said, because of the way, you know, Australia has the resources to be in these places and at these tables, the way they market themselves is we're a first world country and, you know, we do things, um, you know, the, the political way we have votes, we change policies and legislations. And when I went there and addressed them, a lot of the international sort of people that were assigned to the, the UN were very shocked to hear that Australia locks kids as young as 10 um, I think the other thing to note is whilst giving my speech, I think it went for about a minute and 35 seconds that in the Northern Territory, it was 100% Aboriginal detainees. I only found that out myself a few years ago. I, I saw a documentary and I, I, that's just completely unbelievable. Like, even like someone who has some experience, I had no idea that like it was completely Aboriginal in, in the Northern Territory. And that's like, how can they say that's not a racist policy if that, you know, if that's, it's just... Um, really frustrating and another thing that's frustrating is that um like something i found is through my own research over the years is that um like it's really great that the un like brings out all these resolutions the rights of the child the rights of prisoners but the horrible thing about them is that all the resolutions they're non-binding so uh yeah australia just keeps ignoring them and it's like yeah we can get condemned by the un we can uh get you know support all around the world to change and but there's no onus on australia to change anything yes it was broken. Realistically, do you think, see things changing much in the future? Do you think we have a good chance of turning this around? Or? I, like it sounds very morbid and blunt, but I wouldn't be in a position to continually do what I do if I didn't have hope and believe things could be different. 
like I, I just conform and say, you know what, it's not going to change. I'm going to go over in this little corner over here and just take care of me and my kids and, you know, turn a blind eye to everything. But I have hope because, you know, look where I'm at now with my wife. We have our own Aboriginal community controlled organisation. I've had the privilege to sit down and talk about youth justice with the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. I've went to the UN. I've sat down and talked with Richard Brenton about, you know, uh, opportunities for people for employment with criminal records. And for me, this is me, you know, showing that things can be done differently and we're going to do things differently because all of these supporters and the, the spaces they allow me in, man, yeah, and, and I really appreciate what you're doing because it's so great that you were able to open people's eyes over there when you were talking about 10-year-olds in prison because I, one of the things that I think that things are kind of stagnating and don't change as fast as they um, they should is because not enough people just know about what's happening in there. And one of those reasons is because not a lot of people talk about it. So it's, it's great to see, you know, another person out there uh, like um, advocating and spreading the word. Can you um, tell us a bit more about what Deadly Connections does? <laughs> Far out. The question is, what do we do? We do. We, we at the moment, man. We we are functioning at a very, very high level of crisis. We're trying to learn from you know our our what our short three years on how to keep my staff protected and and ourselves protected whilst working with um very complex individuals. But what we do at Deadly Connections, man. Far out. You put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> so we work with individuals and families, you know, to try and give them the capacities to be their own agents for change. We try to help them navigate systems that harm them and separate families and, and incarcerate people. So we try and target the child protection and the justice system and work intensively with MOB to get restoration where possible, to get visitation where possible, and to get access to children and families where possible. We try to work with individuals to get them independent, to get them their own tenancies, to get them accommodation, stability, to get them employment if that's what they want, to get them linked in with counsellors, therapeutic sort of programs, you know, all of the stuff, man, we, I, I done to take care of my trauma and I continue to do every day, so. That's, yeah, and then that's just the coalface grassroots stuff. We also do the high-level campaigning and lobbying and advocating for systemic change. So um, raising the age is one. The other is Aboriginal deaths in custody we're very, very involved in, and particularly here in New South Wales, asking for an, an independent investigation so police or corrective services don't um, investigate themselves when mob die in prison. We want it fully independent. We want it uh, voted and nominated by the Aboriginal community on who these members are. We also want them to implement the recommendations from the Royal Commission, all of them. We want the government to be held to account to say, you know, this document was re released in 1991 and since then we've had more than 450 deaths in custody. The other thing is I personally know like five boys on that list. Two died at the hands of the police, two died in custody. One of them was a long, long time ago, but I have um, two boys my age that, that I've grown up with and cycled through juvenile justice with and the adult prison with. And when reading the list of deaths in custody, I actually found their father on there. Oh, wow. And they never spoke, they've never spoken about it to me. So their father actually was found hanging in a cell in the early 90s at Long Bay. And these two boys have never spoken to me about what happened to their dad. I find that... Um... It's a shame because something I found personally through experience is that the more you talk about things, the uh, you know, the the more support you can get, and the easier it is to uh, to live with those things. So it's uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely a, a shame that they um, 
felt like they couldn't reach out with that. But um, yeah, deaths in custody. There's there's another whole whole issue to talk about. But um, yeah, what you said. Um, yeah, the uh, corrective services and that not investigating themselves. I find like yeah, that's that's probably a big reason why nothing changes because yeah, like yeah, cops investigating cops. You know, no wonder <laughs> nothing ever happens. They they just absolve themselves of any wrongdoing because obviously they have a you know vested interest in making sure that you know. <laughs> nothing changes and yeah that an independent commission would be um a huge step forward i think like i have been looking at the uh statistics like back in 2016 indigenous youth were 25 times more likely to be in prison than non-indigenous people um that's uh dropped now to 17 times which is still absolutely terrible but i mean i get the impression that things are slowly getting better do you feel like we're, we are making some progress i think man <sighs> I have to stay, you know, highly motivated. And when I step back and I have a look at it, you know, I can overwhelm myself and say that it's not working and nothing's changing. But I have to look at the little pockets where we're winning in and stay in that space because who would have thought we would have got those little wins, you know? The ACT has taken on passing the legislation to raise the age to 14. Um, they're actually in the process now of, of looking at what that legislation would look like. I'm on a steering committee here in New South Wales to put forward um, a response to what would happen to that age group if they were criminalised and, and, and if they were to end up in a police station for whatever reason, uh, what that process would look like. So it's not just as easy as saying, you know, just raise it to 14 because then you know the right wing say well what happens to that 10 11 12 13 year old so we have to now as the community and as the academics and researchers in this space put up put a proposal that's good enough for the government which like i said which is very cynical because they're sitting at the other table and i want to ask them why do you continue to lock 10 year olds up and you give me a response now mm, yeah put the onus <laughs> on them and uh it, yeah, it's great to hear uh, we actually are making some progress in the ACT because I feel like um, if we get if we get one state or territory on board, then it's only a matter of time before others follow suit. And yeah, we just yeah the the first step's always the hardest. I feel hopefully we get that soon and we can make a difference. And yeah, that's uh, I really identify with what you say because um, yeah, if we don't have these systems uh, set up in place, yeah, what do we do instead of sending them to prison? You know, if we don't have those set up for when that transition changes, that just gives the right wing an excuse to say, well, look. Hey, it didn't work. Let's just send them back. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that we did that for a hundred years. Well, you know, <laughs> let's, let's just go back to what we know. Yeah. So yeah, it's re it's so important to have those like, um, like a, a well-established plan in place for how we're going to address the, the problem from the bottom up and, and uh, have those really resources in place. Because um, yeah, the way I see it, if you close a youth outreach center or a homeless outreach center or like you know, education, you, you have to build a new prison to compensate that. And the reverse is true. So if we, if we close that youth detention, we, we need some good solid support in place. And uh, hopefully the government doesn't come up with a yeah, absolutely horrendous excuse to just not fund that because yeah, like, I mean, I don't want to get all conspiracy theory, but uh, sometimes it's hard to think that they're not deliberately trying to to screw the situation up by like, yeah, cutting, yeah, they they cut funding to projects and then they wonder why the crime rate grows up. We, Australia ha and 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 the wider community has this funny relationship with you know police and the courts, and they think that they sort of make us safe and you know make communities safer when they don't. You know, police show up after crimes are committed. I, I said that exact line to uh, someone in the first season of the podcast. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. You, you call the police after the crime's been yeah, committed. You know, it's it's the youth outreach people and stuff that stop it from happening in the first place. But yeah, yeah, I completely understand. Yes.
it was broken. How can people find out more about Deadly Connections and other ways that people can get involved in helping what you're doing? Yeah, man. There's uh, we, we have our LUC website, which is um, www.deadlyconnections.org.au. Our most traction buddy is on social, so um, head on over to Instagram. It's just at Deadly Connections. We have a lot of following going on over there. It's, it's a different medium that we use, so... You know, we, we try to educate the community and we put, you know, different information and resources. But in between, we also highlight some of the great outcomes that we're having in community, working with mob and overcoming their challenges. Even now, like when COVID hit, you know, most of the services in my postcode here in 2016 in Redfern shut down. Shut mm -hmm. down because they had access to the COVID relief money because they have infrastructure and set up and their investment from government. We don't have that luxury. We're independent. We're a small charity. So we took on a responsibility to get some resources out to most of the mob that are on lockdown, that are COVID positive, that have to isolate. So I went and got some donations and went to Woolies and bought some food, took them to a cafe, cooked them up. And I went and delivered them, me and my wife, man, through the height of COVID. And there were still, you know, children being taken. There was mobs still going to prison and mobs still dying at COVID. And most of the Aboriginal services were shut down and thinking about their own might have kept some people out of youth's attention just by doing that because you know if you people don't realize that a lot of these crimes are not motivated by like evil they're motivated by need you know like uh there's no food and you know you <laughs> what what else are you going to do I, I was actually in prison with a um with an indigenous man he got four months in for um stealing a a like a five dollar pork chop you know it's just like and the thing is like it costs $110,000 to send someone to prison for, for a year. And so, yeah, rather than addressing the cause of offending, they decided yeah. to spend 40 grand or something. <laughs> and and the funny just... thing about that, and mm. the funny thing about that is he went to prison and the prison gave him a prison wage, which could have paid for the stake. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, it's, it just, it, yeah, it's, it's hard not to like go nuts sometimes with how broken the system is. And uh, yeah, I got, got what you said earlier about um important to focus on the positive because yeah, it's so easy to just, look at all the like the horrible things that are happening and and how how um perverse the system is but yeah you really have to focus on the, the small wins sometimes because yeah that that that's what keeps you going isn't it yeah is there anything else you'd like to share or talk about while we're here so i'd also like to i don't know if you've been uh, aware of it so we myself my wife myself and deadly connections were just scripted into a big documentary that was released um a couple of weeks back on on nitv called incarceration nation I have and heard of that, I yeah. Have a look at it, man. So it's the first time in terms of a narrative being told about colonisation and the direct impact of the over-representation of Aboriginal people in these systems. And the director done a good job at squeezing... Um, you know, a 200-year narrative into 90 minutes. So they talk about when they first come, they talk about Aboriginal protection policy, they talk about missions, they talk about stolen wages, and then it leads up to the current climate of, you know, people dying in jail and all of these things. So it's like I can't fathom enough that I was even involved in it, let alone being in it. I got to taken back into Parramatta Prison and shown, you know, the process of when you get to a prison, the truck pulls you up here, you sit in the reception cell, you sit for hours on end, not knowing what's going on, you know, nobody talks to you. So there's that that documentary, man, which, um, yeah, I'd encourage people to, to watch it. It's going to be on SBS the 31st. Okay, yeah, no, I, I have heard of that. 
I'm looking forward to that because yeah, it is, um, it is a really complex issue, isn't it? Like, it's like, yeah, you, you want, you want to ask like broad questions, like you, why are you know, indigenous people so overrepresented? And there's so many answers that there's no one reason is there. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's great to hear that there's a documentary exploring that in depth because yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. There is jump on our website. If people want to, if they're in Sydney, um, it's hard to do remote volunteers whilst trying to look after staff and community, then look after someone remotely. Like it's just another complex layer of work. But if people are in Sydney, we'd we take on volunteers. Man, I've got merch, jump on the website, buy our merch. It's, it's all ally and accomplice friendly. It's not just for mob, it's not just for black fellas, it's for everyone. And just to stay in touch on our socials, man, you know, like, follow, share what we got and talk about the great work that we're doing, man, and just keep the hope alive. Yeah, no, it sounds good. We'll spread the word about the documentary and we'll definitely put links to your socials and website in, uh, in the show notes there. And yeah, hopefully, uh, yeah, yeah, people check out some of the, the merchandise you've got on. I'll have a look at myself after this. Even going back and have a look at most of the interviews. So I've been around for a while now. I've done a lot of interviews. I've been on the project. I've done a Black Lives Matter stuff with Stan Grant. So there's heaps of different mediums of me sharing my story also. And, and I guess uh, different platforms which allow me to talk on different topics. So I've had a very unique experience. And, and you know, I thank you for giving me the opportunity. If people want to find out more, they can just go like Google me and watch it, man. Sometimes I feel funny because I give a lot of a lot of interviews myself, and uh, I'm telling the same story. But it's something you have to remember is it's it's always a new story to someone else. It's always like first time listeners. So yeah, it's just great to get there out there as many platforms as possible. So yeah, thanks for being on our show today, and uh, yeah, being really great to have you here. Thank you, man. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. were signs of strength. Marks like those were signs of signs of strength. Well, thanks for listening to Broken Chains again. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lenane, is produced by Newcastle Libraries, and features music by Louisa Magrix. On the next and final episode of Season 2, we're going to be talking to Donna Meehan, an author who was part of the Stolen Generation about issues including Indigenous deaths in custody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to smile, and we'll see you next time. Dines of strength. Marks like those were signs. Dines of strength. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production. If you would like to learn more about the topics covered in this or any of the Broken Chains episodes please explore our show notes.